morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to welcome all my guests on this wonderful, wonderful weather day here in Connecticut. It is 10 a.m. and the sun is shining and I am a happy camper because it is much warmer today than it has been in the last couple of weeks. Um, So hopefully you are going to listen and then you're going to get outside and (laughs) enjoy the weather. So we are talking about women today and we are talking about women's position in society and policing women's bodies and my okay <laughs> and policing women's bodies and the politi- the political uh um the politic the political stance the hijabs makes inside of oh <laughs> i'm sorry i'm having a we are having some technical issues, but that's okay because that's why we do live radio. Right. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> maybe I should start again for people who couldn't hear us because we uh, <laughs> we had our air conditioner kind of like really going. That's how nice it is in New Haven today. Yes, we that's had how the nice. AC cranking it. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So if you're just tuning in or you didn't hear my previous un- introduction, you are listening to Mornings with Mubarak on WNHHLP 103.5 FM streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. We are live face on Facebook, New Haven Independent uh, website, as well as MWM Radio uh, Facebook Live. So you can catch us in any of those three if you have to move around and you have to go from one to the other, and that would be fine too. Um, you're listening to Mornings with Mubarak, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. And today we are talking to Dr. Diane Schindler. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to talk about policing women's bodies and what that means in today's uh, in today's world. So let me tell you a little bit about Diane. Diane is an adjunct professor of anthropology's anthropology and women's studies. She earned her Ph.D. in cultural anthropology at the University of Connecticut in 2015. Her research interests include gender, kinship, sexuality and community. She is the mother of four of the cutest kids that you ever want to see and an avid reader and podcast listener. I added those adjectives so you don't think she's vain about her kids, even though she has a right to be vain about her kids. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, so when I actually want to show, we, um, I told you, uh, we really want to talk about how, Today, post-election and probably pre-election as well, the hijab, which is the veil that Muslim women wear, has become a political stance. So for Muslim women, um, it has uh, obviously been a religious stance. And even just the way the dress code of Islam itself, um, which is very similar to the dress code of of, um, some Jewish sects, um, as well as there's dress codes in the Bible and in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So a dress code for a woman is not a new thing. But in today's world, it has become um, a political stance. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I think for Muslim women who wear the hijab, I think that it's a 
Oh, sorry, I'm not close <laughs> enough. Okay, so I think that it's become this really conspicuous symbol of, you know, identity and religious identity. It kind of singles people out. And as people build their assumptions about what is a Muslim woman, they're um, kind of lumping these assumptions onto the woman who wears a hijab. So, of course, it's a decision, a religious decision, but also at the same time, it's intrinsically, you know, politicized and it comes with its own set of, you know, assumptions and, you know, kind of cultural stereotypes and stigmas and things like that, that, you know, in a place where maybe there's Islamophobia, you know, it's a it's an act of, you know, bravery or an act of, you know, that you really have to think about before you put on the hijab for some people. Historically, we know that uh, policing women's and and by not wanting or desiring for uh, a Muslim woman to wear hijab, we know that this is this is uh, really common in France, right? right? So they have this thing where they want Muslim women not to wear hijab. Mm-hmm. You can't wear it in school. They've even gone as far as to pass laws where your skirts can't cover your knees and things like that. Right. All of that is a is a form of policing women's bodies, but it's not. Tell, talk to me a little bit about the 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 history behind policing uh, behind policing women's bodies. Right. I mean this this notion of policing women's bodies of deciding right what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to wear. It's really nothing new, right? If we look at the history of the United States, there's been these certain expectations of how much or how little skin and what parts of the body can and can't be shown and things like that. So if we look just at kind of swimsuit culture on the beach, right, from, you know, 1900s until 2017, you're going to see this whole trend in what's acceptable to show and what's not acceptable to show. And usually that kind of attention on what's shown and what's not has always been aimed, that gaze has always been on women's bodies rather than men's bodies for the most part. So you'll see these kind of different standards that, evolve and change over time and place right and even now in 2017 if you're wearing too many clothes in the form of you know islamic dress or any type of religious dress right people will criticize that but if you're wearing too little clothes as well people will criticize it right so you see it kind of on both ends of the spectrum that really there's no kind of standardized notion of how much or how little should a woman show to satisfy people and who is she really trying to satisfy that would be kind of the question as well you know i i uh, uh an image um comes to mind when when i i was when i was scrolling um um and reading an article about about this topic it was an image i believe it was like the 1920s of they actually in the United States, they actually had beach police with a measuring tape. And if they saw a woman that her 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 beach attire was not long enough, they would literally measure it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really, really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These kinds of stuff. I mean, to even go out with a tape measure. And I mean, if you look at even school dress codes, right, if you look at kind of across the country, this idea of high school dress codes. And there was recently articles about prom dress and the codes of kind of what schools implement for what you can and can't wear to prom in terms of the dress, how much cleavage can be visible, and are they weighing these options differently for girls who are large-chested versus small-chested? They found discrimination in, you know, which kinds of dresses they can wear and things like this. So it's been this kind of constant, continuous policing of women's body through all different kinds of dress codes. When And, uh, and it doesn't just stop with dress. I read a, now that you mentioned prom, I was mm-hmm. reading um, an article that was saying that Two girls were actually banned. Two African American girls were banned from going to prom in natural hair, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't just start. It doesn't right. stop at clothes. No, no, that's the thing. And I mean, these are kinds of all 
all of these are, you know, just kind of manifestations of that same form of wanting to police something about somebody's body and tell them what can or can't be worn or revealed. What I always find interesting is that, you know, taking the title off of it and just looking at the the, the base of what's happening is it seem it is the exact same thing as what is extreme on the other end is say what people say that the Taliban or ISIS does as far as keeping women covered. Why, why do you think that people don't see it the same way? I mean, I think that people have a hard time. This is what I've always noticed is that people have a hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that hijab could be a choice. I think that there's always this kind of assumption that it's somehow forced upon women, but that, you know, wearing fewer and fewer clothes is somehow a choice that women can make. Right. And I think, the only way to kind of break out of that mold is to realize that a woman can make a choice of as much or as few clothes as she wants, right? And to if we're in this kind of multicultural, diverse society, you need to have that space for anyone, right? To For the woman to actually choose and for, you know, to step back and say, why do you need any laws either forcing her to take her scarf off or forcing her to put a scarf on, right? It's both equally oppressive and it both is kind of rooted in this notion that a woman isn't empowered enough to make her own decisions or that somehow a woman doesn't have that autonomy to choose on her own. Mm. Regardless of how many women come out and say, I chose to wear the hijab or I chose not to wear the hijab, right? People always think there's some kind of larger motive or some kind of um, larger kind of, I don't know, political or ideological force behind it. When when we talk, um, let's talk a little bit about about young girls. Um, how does this affect young girls as they're growing up and coming to terms with their sexuality and their uh, their personal concept? Where does the personal concept of sexuality, modesty, whatever level that may be, where does that come into play? Where, did, where does that come from for young girls and how does it change as they as they go get older? Oh, that's a good question. So I teach a, a sex and gender course, actually, and we talk about this question of kind of where does this notion of femininity and the woman's body and sexuality kind of evolve and where does it come from? And I mean, there's a real kind of mixed um, mixed opinion on that from my students that I talk to. So some people say, you know, this is really so much of it is from the media and entrenched in the videos that we watch and the um, television shows that we see and things like this. Other people say that their earliest notions of women's bodies and views on sexuality come from the home and the family. So I think it really depends on the individual child and how they're being raised, you know, in the home. So some people, you know, talk about these things with their kids early on and they monitor closely what kinds of TV they're watching, what kind of messages they're receiving. And other families, I think they kind of give their kids free reign to explore that via different forms of media. And now with online, right, kids are exploring um, things like YouTube and Netflix and having this access to lots and lots of images that can really, you know, I think shape how they see their sexuality, their bodies and how women should or should not be in society or exist. Is that based on the individual child? So, so I guess the question, which is probably the parenting question, Diane yeah. is going to give us the key to the universe. Yes. The authoritative <laughs> answer here. <laughs> then does it really matter what you give your kid or expose them to or let them explore if it it depends on individual kid then what control does parents have 
I mean, I would love to be able to give some kind of good answer. And I think I would be like, you know, I would be like crossing the country on the like you know, TV circuit if I had this kind of answer. But I really think, I mean, from my personal experience raising kids, and I think your experience raising kids as well, you realize how individual children each really do have their own kind of path that they're on in their own development and personal development. And I think as parents, we can tell them, this is what we believe. This is These are our morals that, you know, we have in this home. But I don't really think that you can fundamentally shape or reshape someone's individual essence. I'm not sure. I just think some kids, you know, they can be bombarded with media imagery of, you know, sexuality and oppression and things like this. And they come out really unscathed in whoever they're going to be. And other kids, they're very sensitive to it. And they may develop, you know, issues from seeing too much media and things like that. So I think the job as a parent is to know your child well and to know what they, you know, are capable of handling or what they need in their lives to kind of guide them along that path to, you know, becoming functional adults and being, you know, fulfilled people with good self-esteem. So I don't know. That's no answer, but <laughs> that's like my best non-answer. <laughs> that was a great non-answer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, I don't think you could necessarily just have to set your children loose, but, you know, I think parenting does have to be tailored to the specific child. I don't think parenting is a one size fits all. Which becomes much more challenging when you have multiple kids. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, because you know, it every just, kid is a little bit different yeah, everyone, and you're trying to set uh, you know, standard household rules right. and you're like, mm. right. <laughs> yeah. These rules. Yeah. The rules have to be set and then they're made to be, you know, adjusted and bent yeah, a bent. little for this one <laughs> yes. or for that one. And then you just have to just be ready for the flack. Exactly. But them. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's always that. You have to be how to be fair and to be, yeah. So, so one of the things that I am, uh, that I see just, just personally more common really is, Girls having much, to me, it seemed a, a, a greater challenge than I remember growing up with self-esteem and their bodies. Um, over the last few we- a few months, I have gotten many more requests to train teenage girls than I have ever in the past. And I would say over the last six months or so, you know, um, and that going along with as I go a couple of weeks ago, I was um, I was in Texas uh, speaking to uh, a gr- um, a conference of young girls, young Muslim girls. And one of the other presenters, she had them to do a self-esteem uh, workshop and they had to, and they wrote down kind of like the worst thing, the things that everybody have ever said to them. And some of the things were just like really heart wrenching. But mm-hmm. what was common in this is Things about their bodies. I hate my chest. I hate my butt. I hate my face. Like, and so I wonder just from a perspective of raising girls with confidence and confidence in their bodies, what are some of the, what, how do we go about doing that? Or some of the techniques we can do that to um, make them okay with their sexuality? Well, I mean, I don't know. So when I'm thinking about this idea of women and looking at their bodies and self-esteem, I don't know how much has changed over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or whatnot. I think what's changed more is just kind of how hyper aware we are of it because of the amount of imagery we're exposed to. So I think that when we were growing up a few years ago, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe four or five years ago, four or five years ago. <laughs> there was not that kind of bombardment of things like Instagram and Facebook where people can put really that 
best idealized kind of photoshopped image of themselves out there, right? And so you have that to compare yourself to as a young girl. So I think there's more imagery coming in of some of images that you're able to compare yourself to. So maybe, you know, 20 years ago, you had magazines and things like that, or billboards and, you know, a few television shows, but you didn't have this kind of constant feed, news feed on Snapchat and things like that of people who... Mm looks like they're living the perfect life or have the perfect body and all of these kinds of things that you don't see the other side to, you know? So I think maybe this exacerbates it more, but I think this problem of women dealing with their bodies and viewing their bodies as somehow, you know, not up to standard or up to par, whatever up to standard is um, in that specific era. I think that that's existed for a very long time. This Mm -hmm. idea of policing the body and shaping the body and, you know, removing hair or adding hair and, you know, things like this, Mm -hmm. right? It's always been, kind of something that's driven the when you look at the cosmetics industry and it's this you know billion dollar I'm making that number up I don't know how many <laughs> but it's a you know it's a right. it's a really you know a huge industry a huge industry I don't want to say billion dollar and I have no idea <laughs> but yeah it's a huge industry right and so you see that and it has been for some time so this idea of women shaping their bodies to become the ideal or to compare themselves to one another and things like that I don't think that it's something necessarily new But I think it may be also something that we're talking about more because of social media and because of, you know, having more of a platform as an individual to get your voice out there, Mm -hmm. which on the I mean, on the flip side, that means also the girls, when they write the worst things anyone ever said about them, they also have a lot more comments directed at them, I think, from a young age, if they're participating in social media. If you're reading, you know, when you read the comments section of any article or on any post and things like that, it can be really harsh. And I think more so than when you were kind of forced to deal with people face to face in real life. I think that people sure. are willing to comment a lot more than they would be willing to say to someone's face. So yeah. that changes the game. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM. New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. We are talking about the notion of policing woman's body with Dr. Diane Schindler, if you're just tuning in. So, Diane, let's talk. Uh, so let's go up a little bit. So uh, in age, when we look at young women, young women, you know, college age women, um, there seems to now be a. Uh, to me, it, it's like from every spectrum of extreme of this rejection, like a total rejection of you can't tell me what to do with my body. So I, I remember, I believe it was a, a couple years ago. It may have been, no, maybe about a year ago. There was a, um, there was an, uh, a, an episode. There was a, um, there was a show where uh, I believe she, I want to say she might be an actress um, and she was told by two gentlemen on the show who were, and I and I'm, I apologize, I can't remember the name of the show. I know it was uh, Tyrese and D and uh, Reverend Run on um, "It's Not You, It's Men." That was the name of the show, which has since been canceled, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and they basically told her, "If you don't want to be treated like a whore, don't dress like a whore." <laughs> <laughs> or dress the part and it began a total like nationwide protest of women saying you know what I dress like does not give you a right to my body it has even I would say the extreme of kind of like that movement of rejection is even kind of like there's like these free flow movements of women like not wearing sanitary napkins and literally right. bleeding through so it's right. like a, a total 
extreme mm-hmm. right. <laughs> on that way. Um, wh- what do you think about that movement? Like, is is that something that happens in that college kind of like mind frame, figuring out the world? And those are the people that you deal with. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think in college, there's this incredible kind of um, realization that you come to for a lot of kids, at least for a lot of young adults, where you have these opinions and you have a platform for the opinions and you're really coming into your own beliefs versus what you've heard growing up or what your parents have you know, told you. So people, for example, coming out of a very small town and suddenly they're on a college campus and they're being introduced to all different kinds of ideas and you know, these new concepts and notions. Yeah, I think that, you know, college is a time to explore those ideas and really kind of awaken them. And then you have the passion and the energy of youth behind Mm -hmm. you, right? So that's really an unstoppable type of combination where you have that passion, that self-righteousness, that feeling that you are correct and you have the energy to implement those ideas. I think it's a great time to really explore that idea of what is womanhood? How can you kind of challenge these notions that are already set as to what womanhood and femininity is and, you know, breaking those barriers and those kinds of stereotypes, like the menstruation taboo, for example, right, with free bleeding and this idea that the period is something that should be hidden instead, you know, saying, you know, why is it something embarrassing? Why is it something shameful? And so um, my, this is just my own personal thing. Where do we balance between, and I'm going to say this with much trepidation, what is acceptable versus like how do you, how do we as a society as a community is there a, is there any way for us to determine what that balance is because for me personally right. i'm like okay the free bleeding thing is a little <laughs> bit too far yeah no we gone too much <laughs> Right. But then it, yeah. any and so here in the in the other end of it is that uh you know anytime you say something like that so I might get some like trolls who like free bleeding right <laughs> <That's> okay <laughs> right. you know you're like oh my god you're policing women's bodies mm-hmm. but you're not really you're just saying kind of like too much for our society norms <laughs> right I mean but for I mean maybe I mean in my opinion though I think that having these kinds of you know um. Maybe like with, I mean, well, well, this has become a show about free bleeding, right? So (laughs) this is like, what's on the next intro? Let's say we've moved into the free bleeding movement. So yeah, no, I mean, I think that different opinions and different ways of expressing womanhood, I think we need those in our society to exist. I don't think that we necessarily should be putting limits on them because I think that's what makes, you know, the United States specifically, but also all around the world. I think that's what makes it great to hear these different opinions, to be able to choose from a wide variety. Because if at one end we say, you know, we want people to understand Muslim women and accept lots of clothing, at the same end of the spec- uh, other end of the spectrum, you're going to also have to accept the fact that some women find empowerment in wearing very little clothing, you know. And at the same time, that's how they're expressing their femininity and their womanhood and their individual identities. So I think that, I think it's productive to have this kind of society without the boundaries that we would necessarily you know, want to implement just because of our own beliefs and our own cultural values. So if we're in a multicultural society, say, okay, so we have this person who, you know, likes to wear this or that, that's fine by me because I like to wear, you know, X, Y, Z. So I think, you know, having those open boundaries and those open boards and those dialogues is so important. I think we see it more on college campuses because it is this kind of small living quarters. You're kind of you know, bunched in with a lot of people and a lot of different opinions and ideas. The same with city centers as well. You have this kind of real, you know, heterogeneity of ideas and opinions and everyone working and living together, you know, but I think it's an important kind of mindset that we, you know, develop at the universities, but we can keep going in larger society. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the um, one of the so I'm going to ask you an interesting question that um, was asked of me. So I got I got a message from um, a woman um, and she said she's trying to understand how relatively smart women would choose to wear hijab. <laughs> What is the what's the blockage that prevents people from understanding the choice of wearing hijab, particularly non-Muslim women who feel like they view it as oppressive in in, in their mind? Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's still this belief that hijab itself and veiling or covering of any type is rooted in this kind of patriarchal system where men want to have control over women's sexuality, right? That kind of men have set into place these guidelines and rules and that women are kind of passively following those rules. That's kind of that standard. People who critique hijab, I think this is kind of one of the standard arguments that they put forth and that they have. And I think what has, I think is what's developing as more and more educated Muslim women, you know, are coming to speak and to um, be seen as, you know, women who wear hijab. What they're seeing is that it's really not so much about a man's choice and the man's gaze and blocking out the man's gaze, but it's become a really central point to a woman being seen as a Muslim and, you know, having that strong Islamic identity, just being kind of going out in public when you're wearing a scarf, you're being seen as this woman is a Muslim woman. And, you know, these are the different kinds of attributes about her. So I think, you know, as a woman um, who wears a hijab, I think you're representing Islam, but you're also representing the diversity that's in it, you know? So I think as more and more, you know, visible Muslims come out and start interacting within the communities, which is, I think, you know, a current trend, I think that people will change their opinions on the fact that, you know, only uneducated women would wear a hijab or something like that. They're seeing more and more girls at the universities wearing it as a kind of show of their Muslim identity and a show of making a choice on what on their bodies to conceal or to show, right? It's all part of that same choice. If a woman has the right to, you know, wear very little amounts of clothes, wear very, you know, scanty clothing or whatever, if she chooses to do that, it's fine, but it's equally empowering maybe to cover certain parts of her body. And I think as a society, people are starting to understand that, but there's still that stigma that it's somehow rooted in, you know, female submissiveness or female docility and hiding from men. So let me let me follow that up, piggyback on your last comment, playing devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the response to people say to to when people say, well, covering up and wearing hijab is um, just saying that men are just, you know, creatures of, of desire and lust and you have to protect your body from their lusting eyes. <laughs> right. I think, I mean, I think that's a very limited view of hijab. And I think if someone was really interested, I think people who ask that question, they need to really focus on learning more about what is the hijab and what does it symbolize, especially for Muslim women specifically. So not hearing just about what other people are saying about the hijab, but what asking Muslim women, what does it mean to you, right? What does it mean to you as a symbol of your faith, maybe, or as a way to kind of connect with your creator? So some people find it less about the male gaze and, you know, shutting out men's eyes from your hair, you know, not necessarily, and more about kind of being continuously aware of your connection to a higher power. So if you think about it in that context of Muslim women wearing it to just keep remembrance of, you know, God and of our higher power and of our dignity as human beings... I think then the hijab takes on a very different tone and a very different view. So if people broaden their aspect of what is it, it's more anyone can kind of, you know, put on a scarf and hide out, you know, 
um, wearing just, you know, a hijab and covering up their body. But it's really more than that, right? It's more, it's kind of this kind of spiritual awakening, this spiritual awareness that people have um, when they wear it. So I think if you're looking at it as just a piece of cloth covering the hair, you can have this critique that, oh, why don't you want people to see your hair? Why do you want to cover your beauty? But if you look at it as so much more than that, so much of more of a kind of spiritual statement or a statement, a visible kind of symbol of your connection with the creator, then, you know, it takes on a different tone. Mm. So one of the... Um uh, recently, there was a Muslim woman, Mona Haidar, um, who released a video called Hijab. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love the song. I like, I literally like play it every day. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I like literally play it every day. <laughs> um, um, and the, the chorus to the song is, even though you hate it, I still wrap my hijab. And I just think that, mm-hmm. particularly for young people, that that is really empowering. The not giving into the pressure, the hate, the Islamophobia that you wrap and you still maintain that identity. Right. Um, and she got a lot. She got a lot of praise, but she also got a lot of flack mm-hmm. for it. Right. It became. It, it definitely went viral, and it was on Vox and BuzzFeed and all and 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 everything else. Um, but I think that it became almost uh, a political anthem mm-hmm. for Muslim women in America, right. and for I think for women in general. Because if I rem- if I'm remembering correctly, because I don't remember from day to day what I've seen, and but I I think that this is she was uh, also very pregnant yes. when she was rapping, right? So what that video was doing, I think, was smashing a few different stereotypes that people have, right? Of how should a Muslim woman behave? What are our kind of stereotypes we have about a Muslim woman? Well, surely not as a rapper and surely not as empowered, right? But also, what are our views of mothers and women, right, in general? So should a, a should a pregnant woman be up rapping, right? There's all kinds of debates on should a pregnant woman wear a bikini? Should a pregnant woman do this and that, right? Should a pregnant woman be rapping? So it's all wrapped up in these assumptions we have about what is a mother? What is womanhood? What is a Muslim woman, right? And so I think that video was really interesting in all different types of stereotypes that it was working to kind of shatter or to... Um, fight against yes people t- people took note and i've had conversation about the muslim women dancing mm-hmm. you know the wh- whether they had makeup on or they didn't have makeup on how were their hijab wrapped and how wasn't it wrapped? Right. so it was like not mm-hmm. just in non-muslim circles but in muslim circles there's been lots of right. conversations about it right yeah and i think it's always useful when you have a piece of art that will kind of challenge all the stereotypes from all different types of angles so i think this is why her piece was really effective is how many different you know kind of um, symbols that it broke down and it, you know, really worked to counter and to, you know, play with and play against and things. Um, If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Uh, You're listening to Mornings with Mubaraka, where we're talking about policing women's bodies with Dr. Diane Schindler. Uh, One of the things that I did want to get to is... uh, really talking about Muslim women in politics now. So Islam itself has become central to American politics, to European politics, um, to world politics in general. (laughs) Um, And Muslim women wearing hijab is a symbol of Islam. So a man that does not have any distinguished look as a Muslim can pretty much go about kind of like on a, on a regular basis. But every time someone sees a Muslim woman in hijab, they are immediately brought to mind the notion of Islam and whatever they think that that might be. Um, during, and I always 
I, I'm, I always reflect that even though we are probably in the most historically Islamophobic administration during this administration, we also have our first hijabi lawmaker, mm-hmm. Ilham Omar right. from Minnesota. Um, what does that symbolize that she was able to to kind of like uh, do what was unexpected that, you know, in this time of Islamophobia that she becomes a, a, a representative? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we are living in times where there's this increased um, awareness of Islamophobia and this increased kind of awareness of, you know, um, the challenges that Muslims are facing right now, you know, in the United States, but also worldwide. But I think also this specific time frame, you know, after the elections, I think people really became aware of the importance of embracing diversity and embracing really what makes us great as a country, which is diversity of opinion and people living side by side peacefully as neighbors, you know, and knowing about each other. And I think there is this real kind of push to fight for and continue to hold on to those values that, you know, people have really come to, I think, take for granted almost if you were to say, you know, okay, we're going to have a really smooth flow of, you know, all political leaders who are supportive of diversity. You know, when you come up against an administration that all of a sudden is not supporting diversity, you have people who say, wait a minute, we need to actually take a you know, take part and step forward and voice our own opinions as well. So we're not just relying on, you know, the kind of status quo. People are saying we want to elect, you know, diverse lawmakers. We want to, you know, um, show that we value our communities and the Muslims and, you know, all people from all backgrounds in our communities. So I think that in one sense it is, you know, this time of heightened awareness of Islamophobia, but in another time it's this time of great potential, I think, for people to show that they do want Muslim neighbors and they do want people, you know, there with them and diversity in their communities. Do you think that we're going to see a continued kind of like effort for that, that diversity? So as her being the first or. I hope so. I mean, (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I really hope so. I hope more people will take, you know, an active part in campaigning and taking these leadership roles and, you know, wanting to take place in politics because I think still, you know, when you say Muslims are a hot topic in politics, it's still a lot of talk about Muslims, about this figurative Muslim, right? Without any kind of concrete examples of actual Muslim people coming out and becoming politically active and, you know, running for legislature or Congress or whatnot. So I think there's still a lot of talk about this kind of metaphorical Muslim rather than people actually, you know, physically coming forth and, you know, working at lawmaking and things like that. That's absolutely, I like that, the metaphorical Muslim. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. It becomes becomes kind of like a way for people to uh, just pacify themselves if it and i guess it's with any demographic black people uh, hispanic yeah. people you know if you can put them in a box right then it helps you to be able to stack them mm-hmm. right right absolutely yeah <laughs> but yeah. once someone goes outside the box you're like no you're messing up my nice bookshelf yeah, it doesn't fit yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't fit um when we talk about um when we talk about Muslim women in politics in particular and Muslim women advocacy um, or, or being in the forefront of advocacy, some of the people that that comes to mind is Linda Sassor, who has always who has always been really a forefront and an advocate. Um, Dalia Mugahid, um, and now we see uh, other people who are really stepping out. Do you think that in the Muslim community, is there a consorted effort or do you see one? And even if it's not in your particular local community, do you see a consorted effort of Muslim women 
actually trying to redefine their narrative? I think that with this new generation of kids now who are in college, let's say this new kind of college age set, I think there is a lot more activism, a lot more, you know, young women wanting to step forward and take an active part in rewriting that narrative of what does it mean to be a Muslim? What does it mean to be engaged with your community and with the larger community, right? And to be kind of part of that fabric of the United States. So I think there's definitely, you know, as we're moving, you know, through time, I think, you know, this idea of all identity groups having this um, desire to rewrite the narrative, to make it more all-encompassing and all-diverse and things like this. I think that's definitely something that's, you know, a continuing trend. And I think, you know, like I talked about before, with media, with social media, you have more people having an open platform as well, I think, for you know, putting forth those ideas, a kind of low cost investment to be able to, you know, have an active social media um, presence and to write things and to write blog posts and things like that. So I think there's this increasing savviness that young people have with being able to, um, you know, engage with the the larger community to rewrite this notion that a Muslim woman is somehow uneducated or is somehow, you know, not as, um, not as equal to men as, you know, a non-Muslim woman or, you know, whatever those kinds of stereotypes that people have about Muslim women. I think that there is this kind of increased trend of trying to break down those stereotypes. That brings to mind, I know a recent campaign is um, the founders of Muslim Girl. They are doing a joint campaign with, I want to say Shuttershock. It might be Getty, one of the image companies Mm -hmm. of actually having, showing Muslim women doing different things just literally kind of like creating stock photo for (laughs) for media and um that is kind of i think that that's a a, to me that's a big step Mm -hmm. a big step forward for sure yeah that visibility of seeing this kind of normalization right i mean so many of the images if you think about googling you know the um kind of image of muslim woman you'll see these images of you know war-torn countries or political strife and protests right but is that really the default image of the muslim woman you know that exists where it's so much more of just standing at the beach with your family or going to a picnic or driving to work and you know sitting at the coffee machine trying to wake up right i mean those are the (laughs) kinds of images that are the realistic images of muslim women so i think yeah with media with increase i mean more and more places are also doing advertisements with muslim women in hijab and things like that right the gap just gap just yeah yeah. the gap just actually i saw that yesterday i think right i don't know how long it's been out i might be like just behind (laughs) but but the gap is doing a campaign and um a couple weeks ago Grey's Anatomy, they just had like a Muslim woman in the background, a Muslim nurse were in full hijab and it's it's an effort. I see an effort to really normalize it and it doesn't have to be. And I think the the important what makes it significant is that it's not kind of like, hey, look, this is our Muslim woman, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, the way Grey's Anatomy did it was like perfect. It wasn't like kind of like, hey, look, we have a Muslim woman. It was just her blending in the background doing what she do. You didn't have that dramatic (laughs) background music like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's the panning and the blurred (laughs) focus. Right. (laughs) Right. She just was a hijabi wearing nurse doing whatever she does. Right. And I think that does. I mean, that obviously for all minority kids that plays, uh, you know, it plays a big um, role, this idea of representation in the media, right? So for young girls or for, and young boys as well to see that, to see that image of a normalized Muslim woman, you know, just kind of standing, you know, in a gap outfit. I mean, that doesn't, I think it means a lot of for them to feel, 
you know, as part of the society, as embraced by their society and, you know, part of that fold of American fabric, which they already are. But I think more and more representation really leads them to that feeling that they are included and that, you know, people are noticing them. I think that one of the the the, the changes that I see in myself, particularly um, post-election, is uh, a intentional effort to normalize being Muslim in America. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, one situation is uh, I was I was traveling. I can't remember where I was going. I was in an airport somewhere, someplace that wasn't Connecticut. Um, oh, I, I think I was going through the D.C. airport, the Washington, D.C. And there's a lot of hijab wearing Muslim women who works in the airport. Right. And so like I intentionally did not like give them the greeting Right. So I just was like, here's my ticket. Yeah. Absolutely normal that the stewardess is Muslim. Absolutely normal. She's taking my ticket. Absolutely normal. She's checking my bag. Like, it's no big deal. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I actually, I remember mentally saying, I am not going to react differently to her. Right. I want this to be normal. Mm -hmm. And like, people are like, oh, look, all Muslim women know each other. They're (laughs) doing like their special high five thing, right? The in group special. Yeah. (laughs) Right. The in group thing. And so, uh, and that's been my kind of like intentional, intentional, uh, consorted effort to, to to normalize being Muslim in America because it is very normal. Right. And it shouldn't be something that's kind of like, Oh my God, look, it's a Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you one more question. Again, passing on questions that, mm-hmm. I, that, I, that I hear often. One of the things, so one of the interesting things that I have found um, since the election, that I, the question that I have gotten the most often from non-Muslim women is, I want to be an ally to Muslim women. Would it help if I start wearing hijab? What do you th- first? What do you think about that question? I, I mean, I I think if someone if someone wants to wear a hijab for whatever reason they want, right? I mean, there are, there's people who wear a scarf over their hair for lots of different reasons, right? So if they if they want, so they to, like literally want to do it for political reasons for politi- to kind of like just to see more hijabis right. around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any problem with it because I don't think that you know I don't think it makes you more or less Muslim to wear it. To be honest, so I think that a Muslim woman, whether she's wearing the hijab or she's not wearing the hijab, right, she's still a Muslim woman. And a non-Muslim person who's wearing a hijab, it doesn't necessarily make her Muslim. I mean, it would make her more visible in society, right? And it would maybe challenge some of the kind of existing frameworks. But I mean, I don't know that that's really the best way to channel energy. You know, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily the only way to channel energy is to buy kind of, you know, looking more Muslim. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I, what I think about that. I mean, I don't think there's any problem with it. If someone really wants, I know they do like world hijab day and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fine. If, and if someone wants to wear hijab or wants to experiment with it, you know, why not? You know, people are welcome, I guess, to, you know, you can go to Target and buy a scarf or something like that. But but I don't know that that's really where the advocacy needs to be, you know, directed necessarily. And I mean, also the whole movement of, you know, some people taking off the hijab after the elections. That's also something that happened in the question of, is it more, would it, you know, further the cause of Muslims to just start uncovering and to, you know, become more visibly assimilated into society? So that's another question, which is loaded also with lots of racial connotations as well right if someone can take off the hijab 
and become, you know, tapping into this sort of kind of white privilege in society is that one choice versus an African-American Muslim who will take it off and, you know, have all kinds of other issues to deal with at I the same that time. That, so that, that's the a whole assimilation will only happen yeah. for white Muslims. Right. Yeah. But if you're Indian other... and you take off your scarf, if you're exactly. Malaysian, you take off, you're still Indian yeah. and Malaysian. You so still don't look the, white. So those are all the, and I mean, and then <laughs> yeah. putting it on is the same thing. So, you know, what is assimilation and what is, you know, does everyone wearing a scarf mean that Muslims have really assimilated into society? Absolutely not. Right. It has to be done through other channels. So what? So as we come towards the end of the show, um, what are some actions today? Say um, action steps. Do you think that we can take to? I would like to depoliticize mm-hmm. wearing a hijab. Right. Well, h- how is that going to come about? I mean, I think the way that it's going to come about is just this day to day interaction and the work that we do on a daily basis of just you know, being kind to our neighbors and being assimilated into our communities as far as attending school events, attending, you know, work and getting to know your coworkers, things like this. I mean, I think all of that does, you know, there's those little steps that people come to see, oh yes, this is a Muslim, but she's also my neighbor. This is a Muslim and it's also, you know, my best friend's daughter, things like this. So I think that's, you know, that's really the only way forward, maybe. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. If you have been listening, you are listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Until next week, I'm reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.